everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in and uh, sharing the show with your friends. Um, I've been running into a lot of people out on the road now that I'm playing shows that have been listening and I really appreciate it. So if you can, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or follow us on Instagram. It's Kraz plus one, K-R-A-Z plus one. Um, or you can follow us on Spotify. And we're pretty much everywhere. Wherever you want to listen to your podcast, you can find us. So I've got some shows coming up. Uh, my band, The Assembly, has been getting out there and prepping to go out and tour behind my new album, Always, which comes out in February. Uh, we're announcing a ton of dates soon, but uh, we've got the North Beach Music Festival in Miami happening December 10th and 11th. So if you're in that area, you got some friends in Miami, let them know that we'll be there with a bunch of other great artists. I'm also doing a really cool event on the island of Kauai um, with a bunch of great artists through this uh, organization called IGE, the Immersion Group. I've done some really cool events with them in the past. Went to Barcelona uh, a few years back, and they bring a lot of cool artists together with local artists. And it's really cool because we collaborate with uh, the artists in the town that we're in, um, and it's about the culture and about the food and the music and kind of bringing that all together. So yeah, you can find out more on that at innogiven.org. That's I-N-N-O-G-I-V-E-N.org. So we have a really great show today. I spoke with Nate Smith, who's an incredible musician, producer, composer, but most importantly, one of my favorite drummers of recent years. He really has a sound and a technique that's completely his own. I've gotten to play with him a bunch of times, and I gotta tell you, his groove is like nobody else. Um, you may have heard him with the Fearless Flyers, where he collaborates with some of the guys from uh, Wolfpack. He's been touring recently with Brittany Howard of the Alabama Shakes, and uh, released a record pretty recently um, called Kinfolk to See the Birds. So we talk about that, we talk about his style, and how he developed his sound. So I'm excited to get into this interview, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, so he's a producer, arranger, songwriter, and one of my favorite drummers of this generation. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. Nate Smith. Well, thank you for taking the time and, and joining me and doing the podcast, man. I'm a huge fan of yours and been listening to your music for a while, man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm, I hope we get another chance to play together. We only had that one yeah. hectic birthday jam. Situation. That was really fun, though. I, you know, it was uh, packed in that place. I remember just trying to get to the stage was like yeah. like a whole uh, Tetris situation. But you had Emily King playing with you that night. You started playing at like at eleven or twelve. Am I right? Yeah, I was kind of late, relatively late. You know, some cats start playing three years old. You know, in church and right. stuff. But it it was a little later for me when I got serious about it. Um, yeah, and my brother, I had an older brother who played, and so I would watch him play. He had a little, you know, drum set at the crib, and and I'd watch him, and I'd I'd be like uh, trying to mimic what I saw him doing, you know. I didn't really find my own relationship with the drums until 10, 11 years old, like fifth grade-ish, you know. Was there a specific artist or a specific recording that 
kind of flipped a switch for you? When I started to get into music, I was just kind of obsessed. You know, my pop had this VHS tape of Grover Washington live in Philadelphia. This was like mid eighties. I think this, yeah, this yeah. was. And so the band was, um, I think it was Anthony Jackson, Eric Gale. I think it was Richard T on keys, wow. Ralph McDonald on percussion and Steve Gatt on drums. Oh, so yeah. that was my first is that time like a seeing CTI sounds like, yeah, it was, it was around that era. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they're playing Mr. Magic and, and Steve Gadd takes this epic drum solo yeah. and I'm just watching it. I'm just like rewinding it and I'm watching it over and over again. And I think that's when I kind of thought to myself, man, I, I want to do that. That, that really looks like fun. Cause it just looked like, you know, the way that he was playing with Ralph and the thing that they were getting into it just looked like they were having so much fun doing it, you know? And I was like, I, I, I need, I need, I need to get on that. <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what are they on? Yeah. I need yeah. to get on that. Yeah. So that might be the first, one of the first um, performances or records I ever heard that I was like, man, I want to get inside what these, what these drums are doing, you know? And were, were your, were your parents musical? No, I, I'm the only musician in my family, like on, professional musician like right. I, you know my pop sang he 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 had a doo-wop group like in back in the back in the day um and they would do like talent shows and stuff and he sang bass in the group you know and um he wanted to do music but my granddad was not down he was not down with it and was like yo you need to go to college you need to get a job you need to not doing this music um, so he, he might've been a little bit of a frustrated musician. Um, but my, my mom sang in the choir, you know, we had, I had a couple of uncles who played a little piano, but no one, um, professional, no professional musicians. Yeah. In the family. So when you initially picked up the drums, um, and, and were playing, like, were you playing in church? Were you playing with, with friends in, in school band and stuff like that? What was your first like performance situation? It was mostly garage band stuff. I had a couple yeah. buddies who would, who would come over and play a little, you know, um, really bad guitar while yeah. I was, while I was playing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. playing some drums. And, uh, and I think what, well, also at the same time that I got into the drum set, I was also doing, you know, uh, middle school band. So I was doing percussion um, and I was learning, you know, to read. I was learning, you know, to play mallets. I was learning all that stuff. Um, so th it was kind of all happening at the same time, like this, this, you know, fascination with music and just learning more and more about it. But the first, um, I, you know, I didn't grow up in a drum church. Um, yeah. My church was actually kind of quiet. It was AME church. Um, so it was, like uh, the drums came out on special occasions, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, it took me a minute before I started playing in church regularly, not until I was about maybe 13, 14 that I start playing like at the, you know, monthly concert or, you know, I started actually working at a Baptist church around that time too. So I would play like every Sunday or every other Sunday, you know? I know your background, you know, it's kind of split in different ways because, and you can hear this, especially on the new record, but you know, you're an incredible jazz player and it's weird to even use that word anymore because it's right. just like, it's all music. But uh, I hear a lot of, you know, funk and, and hip hop in your playing. What were you listening to in your like teenage years? Like what, what, like, was it all over the map Were the particular artists you were like super fans of? 
Yeah, I was nerding out over the police when I discovered them. That was my brother. My brother had police records. And so, you know, that that Stuart Copeland snare drum sound, I just, you know, you hear that on a record and you zero in on that. It's like, what is he doing? How is he doing that? You know, I was nerding out on Peter Gabriel, too. That So album with Manu Kache playing. You know, it was all orbiting around who the drummer was, you know, so... Anything with Genesis, with Phil Collins and Chester Thompson, like um, when I really started to, to to get into like you know the the nitty gritty reading interviews and all this with with my favorite drummers, uh, Modern Drummer had this thing. I think they they used to do this where they would put a like a really flimsy like forty five inside of a magazine. So you 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 order the magazine and it comes with this like tear out uh, insert forty five and it, it was this drum solo. Um, I've got to find this, man. It was this drum solo with uh, from a Genesis concert with Phil Collins and Chester Thompson playing duet. Man, I wore that fucking thing out. I wore that. <laughs> I wore that out. I, it was. I played that thing to death. I was like trying to to, to learn every note of it. Um, and so I was. Th- those were the first. That was my first way in. Sting, the police, whatever was on the radio. I was. I was digging. Um, and then a little later on, a couple years later, I discovered Living Color, and that was like the. That was the real, like, because of all of the musical sophistication of what Living Color was doing, how deep it was, um, and the way Will Calhoun played these fills and, like, this, you know, it was just so, it, they turned it inside out for me. And I was just like, okay, what is what is that? I remember getting that tape, The Cult of Personality, and wearing that thing out and just being completely blown, mind blown. Cause you know, we didn't get to grow up or at least I didn't get to grow up, you know, having like a Hendrix, you know, I mean, Hendrix was my thing, you know, but Vernon Reed and, and living color were like kind of, you know, for me, the same kind of thing. It was like, there was like, once I discovered that album kind of changed a lot. It changed a lot for me too, man. And it yeah. was, it was also, you know, I was so obsessed with them that I was getting into the, all of their like, you know, many documentaries they'd put out. They had like this little, between their two records, they had this documentary they put out called Time Tunnel, which was, you know, they talked about the origin of the band. They talked about, you know, how all the cats met, who they were playing with before. Um, And it was in that video that I discovered Vernon's relationship with Ronald Shannon Jackson, who I didn't really know. I mean, you know, he was was kind of a relatively obscure figure, you know, even in jazz, you know. But just watching that, and it was just like, man, all these guys have all these backstories that they're bringing to the music. Um, and I, I just, you know, I, I bathed in it. I was freebasing Living Color, man. I was so obsessed. <laughs> yeah, it was also through them that I found, like, the Bad Brains and HR and all that stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it opened up a portal. Because I hadn't seen in my house, 
it wasn't really a rock and roll house in my house. My, my pop wasn't into it. He wasn't really even even into blues like that. Like it wasn't even like a Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters house. It was like, you know, the only black man I saw with a guitar until I saw Prince was like George Benson. You know, he was the only cat who, I mean, of course, that's a lot of guitar too. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it did open up a, a rabbit hole for me. And I was like, okay, so who are all these people? 24-7 spies, bad brains, you know, fishbone. Uh, what, so what was your dad listening to? Like jazz records mainly? Mostly um, instrumental R&B records before it was it was commodified as smooth jazz right 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 he was listening to sanborn yeah grover washington quincy joe sample the jazz crusaders oh yeah yep and those are some great records those are some great great records bob james you know that that you know that stuff was mind-blowing too and also that was my introduction to instrumental music that was also social music because you know my pop would put those records on when he would invite friends over and they would dance to them. They would, you know, get drunk. They, it was just like, yo, yeah. this is, this is music for a good time, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, those were the earliest records. Um, the, the living color stuff, the, the, the black rock stuff. I found that on my own sort of, but yeah, yeah that was the earliest stuff was, was that instrumental R and B man, that, that really groovy golden age stuff, you know? Yeah. For me, I remember also, through finding those like kind of rare groove and, and, and I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Eventually Sanborn was kind of a current artist that was doing that, but you know, finding the Herbie Hancock, you know, headhunters era was another deep dive for me of like, okay, this is, you know, cause it had all that harmony and that improvisation that was like next level, but it, it was, there was pocket the entire yes. time. Entire time and and all that texture on the records too. Like I had never, you know, as much as I dug what, you know, Bob James was doing and what, you know, um, Joe Sample was doing, like Herbie's thing, because he was doing so much stuff around technology, so much stuff around, you know, synth and and using using that shit. Like it it just it just kind of um, opened my mind in terms of what what kind of colors you can get on a record, you know. Um, and just, you know, obviously that band, Harvey Mason Jr., like, oh, man. I mean, Harvey Mason, I'm sorry, yeah. Harvey Mason Sr. Sr., yeah. Um, it, it's just, uh, it's just incredible, man. Like, um, and Paul Jackson, maybe my, one of my favorite players of anything. <laughs> he, he totally checked, because I was a bass player first, and when I discovered him, that was all I wanted to do was just play all the Paul Jackson licks. Just all, all the Paul Jackson long. lines. All day yeah, long. Yeah, some some musicians do that to you, man. Like you, yeah. you listen to them play, and it's like, okay, I want to play everything this person plays. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because I think you know you. Everyone has that person, like that, or one or 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 a two of them, and then you know you end up defining your sound by taking pieces of obviously a lot of different people, and you develop that into your sound. Would you say there's a drummer or a few? I mean, you mentioned Steve Gadd. Yeah, but um, after Sting left the police, he did this band, the Bring On the Night band. Of course, yeah. And it was all about Omar. Yeah. And was Kenny Kirkland in that band Kenny too? Kirkland, uh, Branford Marsalis, yeah. Daryl Jones. It, it was a heavyweight band, man. Yeah. And that movie, I think, 
I actually do believe I wore out the the VHS tape of that movie. Like I had to like get another one because I just watched it so many times. And I I actually, you know, my my, my pop had this kind of like um this credenza with all this uh his stu- home studio stuff in it. So I I kind of rigged this way of recording the audio from the VHS to a cassette so that I could play along with it. I could take the cassette to my room and just, and just play every note on my plate. I watched that movie and I can sing all the drum fills he plays. I can air drum all of it. It's just, it was the first piece of music, first movie or like, you know, extended piece of, of music that I just wanted to commit to memory because not only was he playing his ass off, it was like he was kind of reinventing that whole catalog. Half of the stuff he had played with the police, you know, they, they do a version of Driven to Tears on that that thing. And it's like Omar adds this whole other arc to it, you know, just the way he he plays behind Branford's solo. It's just, man, they opened up a universe of music in that. In that. So that might be the first example of um, something I saw where I, I really wanted to mimic every note that the, the drummer was playing. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's Steve Gadd, there's Omar, obviously there's Stuart Copeland. There was a, a concert movie that Prince made, Sign of the Times, around the, when he released the that album. And Sheila E. was playing on that uh, that movie. And same vibe. Like, I watched it so many times. <laughs> I memorized all the fills. I tried to get to, to tune my snare to sound like hers because that snare sound is incredible in that, that movie. Um, so I, I think those were like the first few things I saw where I was just like, I want to mimic everything these drummers are doing and try to get as close to it as possible. Not only what they're playing, but also the sound of the drums too, you know. Would you say, like, did you have any teachers in your life too that kind of, because for me, it really was playing to records, you know. Like I eventually, when I was in college, I got to link up with Youssef Latif, who was kind of a mentor mus- musically, but he wasn't a guitar instructor, you know what I mean? Did you have a, a, like a drummer, like teacher that was like pivotal for you? No, man, I never had a a private instructor throughout my teenage or or even college years. I I it was all like sort of intuitive and me copying what I heard from records. And um you know, in marching band, cuz I was on the flip side of it, I was a marching band geek too. So I had there was a drum instructor there who, you know, obviously we learned a lot about reading music, we learned a lot about technique in marching band. Um and so there, that was the closest thing I had to any kind of consistent private instruction. You know, um, when I got to college, um, I actually wasn't a music major in college. I made, I did media arts and design in college, which is like they called it mass comm back in the day. Um, but I was like playing in all the student ensembles. And I was like, you know, um, kind of like wanting to be a music major without being a music major, you know? Yeah, I, um, I saw that when I was reading about you a little bit, and I was really curious about that. Why Why did you make that choice? Were you not kind of on the music path at that point? I was definitely on the path. I just kind of, it looked to me like where I was in school, James Madison, which is one of the, I, I love JMU. I, I really had a great time there. But it seemed to me that there there wasn't much of a focus on building a jazz drum set program there. And um, most of the music majors, most of the percussion majors that came through there were kind of, you know, more symphonic orchestral players, you know. So I kind of decided that I was going to continue to just play in all the student ensembles, but um, 
learn as much as I could just by listening to records and sort of mentally transcribing them, you know. Um, I, the first time I had consistent private instruction was in grad school, actually. I went to Virginia Commonwealth University for a year of a graduate program. And a great, great drummer named Howard Curtis, uh, who's kind of like a um, Hampton Roads, Virginia, like sort of legend, um, virtuoso drum set player. He, he was on the faculty at VCU. And that was my first time really talking to a drum instructor, like a one-on-one, who gave me a ton of ideas to explore. And we just would get together and listen to records. And he was like, yeah, I, I know you've listened to A, B, and C, but have you ever checked out Victor Lewis on this record? Have you ever checked out Lewis Nash on this record? He's like, are you hip to these concepts? And, and so Howard, you know, he saw what I was into. He saw what I was interested in. He saw the potential, but he also said, man, there may be some information that you can infuse into that, you know? Um, so that, that was, but that was the first and only time I've had a consistent, uh, regular drum, um, drum teacher, you know, the rest of it has been by ear, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because you do have such a unique style to your playing. And actually there's something we haven't mentioned yet that I was curious about. How much influence did you take from the James Brown drummers? Like Jabbo, did you listen? I mean, I feel like Clyde and Jabbo are just like in everyone's psyche that plays R&B and funk at all. But was it something you played that you, I wouldn't, I don't want to say studied, but did you, did you play to those records? Oh, I studied for sure. You know, James Brown didn't enter my life until maybe my sophomore year in college. That was my first time discovering that one greatest hits record that everybody has um, the 20, 20 greatest hits with, you know, all of the stuff that I recognized as hip hop samples was, I was like, oh, these are the original records, right? you know, right, right. Papa Don't Take No Mess. Oh, that's the Vapors. That's Biz Marquis. The, yeah, okay. Yeah. The Big Payback. Oh, that's, you know, they use that for the f- total and bad boy. That's okay. I know that. Yeah. Like, so and when I dug into it, it was like, oh, this, this is the real, this is, this is the foundation of all of that. So, yeah, man, I would put on that that 20, I'd take my little disc man in the, in the practice room, I'd put on that 20, and I would play along to it for hours. I'd play along to it for hours. I'd play along to the big payback. I played it like four or five times in a row, just like, and then take a break, come back, play it another, you know, just to lock into that pocket that, that, that and I think it's, that's J-Bo on that record, on, on the big payback. I yeah, think I think so. it is, yeah. Um, and then, of course, when I discovered, I think the Funky Drummer, I don't know if it's on that compilation. I discovered that later. And I realized, okay, so this is the drum beat that I've heard in every pop song for the yeah, last Yeah, and every hip-hop, I mean, that song has been sampled more than, than anything. Than anything? Yeah. It's funny, so you were one of them, too, because a lot of people from, from, from our era discovered those, those breaks, you know, through the hip-hop. You know, yes, records. it was it was the only way I didn't know. And even when I discovered, you know, a tribe called Quest, I'm listening to that. You know, it, it just it just kind of goes to show how important hip hop has been to our generation of musicians, because it was our way in. We would I wouldn't have known who, you know, what Mystic Brew was, what that song was if I hadn't heard electric relaxation, you know? And it's like, you, you listen to this and it's like, man. And, and also this, whatever the moment that they captured in the sample, whatever feeling they captured in the sample, you know, it's like, that's sort of the enduring feeling of, of those recordings. It's like that energy is still there in all those recordings, you know? 
Um, so that was my way to discover jazz was going through those hip hop records. Like, man, what is this? Bob James Nautilus? What? I, I never, I've heard this in my dad's house, but I didn't know that this was the sample that they used for, you know, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. But yes, to answer your question, I was one of those cats. I, I discovered the break beats. I discovered all, and I just wanted to learn how to do it. I wanted to learn how to play it and make it sound that good. I think we got to something with just now that I have to mention is that, you know, you, you talk about like that moment, you know, in the break, like I listen to the meters and then there's this moment in, in bar, you know, 150 where he plays this one thing. You're like, Oh, that's insane. And then that's where the sample sample comes from. There's a lot of drummers now that work on playing those loops, you know, and, you know, obviously Chris Dave is, is amazing and quest love. Um, but you have your own take on it completely. And one of the things that, that, uh, that really drew me into your playing was watch. I mean, I knew of you as a drummer before, but um, Jose James started posting these videos of you. And I don't even know if I, I think I found him through other people posting it and, and started watching for those videos and your ability to use space in your, in, in, in your beat making, for lack of a better term. Um, is really unique and and you know a lot, you know obviously everyone talks about you know Miles Davis using the space between his notes um but the way that you use that and and a lot of um times I I've, I've seen you play with the most minimal setup you know just hi hat kick snare uh was there like a moment where you kind of stripped down to that or, or was that something you always kind of had in your psyche That's a really good question. I don't know that there was a conscious decision I ever made to like well, actually, yeah. Okay, so when I started touring with Dave Holland, this yeah. was um, 2003, I joined the band. And I was playing a uh, five-piece kit, right? Actually, I, was, I think I was playing six, so I was playing two floor toms. Um, and and I had like, I think I had four cymbals set up. And, you know, I just realized night after night, I wasn't playing half of those drums. Like I was, <laughs> I was setting all this stuff up and I was like, okay, well maybe when I break the mallets out, I'll play, you know, I'll play, but I wasn't playing all of them because the language that I was developing as a player was focused really on kick, snare, hi-hat, and maybe ride cymbal and trying to get a dialogue between those four instruments, you know? Um, and a lot of that comes back to the stuff I was listening to Omar and Steve Gadd and Bernard Purdy and Harvey Mason do because they were playing these vamp-based grooves, but they were finding all this space to insert really cool language and really cool like ghost note language and just fill up the space between the beats or some in some cases leave it open, you know? Um, and it also forces you to, to concentrate on dynamics too. It's like, how much can you do with a kick snare hi-hat setup? You know, like how, how, how can you make it interesting if you have four drums to play, three drums to play? How do you make it interesting, you know? Um, so I don't know that there was one moment, but I do re remember kind of being like, I'm actually going to just strip it down to the drums I actually play, <laughs> right. you know, right. and and see how much I can get out of those instruments, you know, and and um, you know, doing this thing with the Fearless Flyers, the first uh, video I did with them, I showed up and that's all there was. <laughs> right, right. That's interesting how that because I do remember that video. 
you know, I don't know if viral is the term, but that video got so many places. And I remember like that being kind of a signature thing because you take, it's a lot of the, I wouldn't say you take a solo, but there's a lot of, you know, you're kind of the centerpiece, you know, of that video and you're playing this tiny little setup. makes you focus on the most fundamental things. It's like touch, what part of the drum you're playing, what part of the stick you're using, how loud you're playing. Are you playing with the pedal on the, the head or is it off the head? Like, you know, it just really makes you focus on the smallest little nuances. And I feel like those nuances can make all the difference. You know, they really yeah, can. Man. It changes the whole sound of the kit, you know. Um, so, yeah, man, that, that was the and I think that was kind of by design on Jack's part, uh, Jack Stratton, who was, you know, obviously the, the sort of the Svengali of, of the Wolfpack world. Um, but I think that was by design because he had been watching some of those videos too. And he had noticed that I, all of the language had kept, was kind of built between kick, snare and hi-hat, you know, and, and turning the, turning that stuff inside out. You know? To relate it uh, on my side as, as a guitarist, you know, I used to bring this, the pedal board that was the side of, of a coffin. You know, and it was just like so many layers of things and play, you know, it's like when you're younger too, it's like, oh, I can have all this stuff to play with. And over the years, it's gotten smaller, 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 smaller. And now I'm like a chord and a tuner and like I'll have a fuzz pedal, you know, or a gain pedal. But what it has required me to do is really work on the dynamics of my instrument and my relationship with those details of, of my instrument. And I, I feel like I have be, become a way better player because of that, you know, and I'm fit in those, again, it comes down to those dynamics and, and you start to understand the relationship of these things more and more, you know, you do. And, and it's, it's, um, I tell you, man, it really makes you appreciate your instrument. It yeah. really does in a way that maybe you don't, when you've got so much stuff and you've got so many options, you strip away those options. Like, man, I've got to do the absolute best I can with just this, right? Which makes you think about, it makes you think about every choice you're making. Every choice is like, oh, okay, well, yeah, this can, I think this will work. Okay, let me try this here. Let's see if it makes a difference. And let's see if it opens up a little sound. Um, you know, so, so yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think... Um, you know, that's, I think that's something that a lot of musicians go through. Like you start to, at, having played a while and having gotten a better sense of your own personality as a musician, you're like, man, maybe I can do more with less. Maybe I don't need all this excess, you know? We'll be right back after this short break. Whoa. 
one thing I wanted to ask you about that I did not know about, and uh, I'm curious the story behind this, is that you are credited to have written a song for Michael Jackson. And I had no idea. So I decided to not find out about it and, and just ask you this question. Like, okay. What, what happened? <laughs> Man. All right. Well, so it starts in Richmond, Virginia in 1997, right? This is after college. I'm living in um, Richmond. I'm in, I'm in grad school at VCU. And when I'm not in class, I'm at home and I'm making beats. You know, cause I had started making tracks my senior year in high school. Um, and my my folks for graduation, they bought me um, a Korg O1W, you know, yeah, which was like yeah. my, you know, I, I dove into that thing. I, I turned it inside out trying to learn how to make music on it because I just always wanted to do it and was yeah. fascinated by it. It was a great composing tool. So anyway, I, you know, I'm home, I'm making these tracks and I make this this song and I had a mini disc player at the time. So yeah. I put the the song on mini disc. Yeah, I, I took it to my home. Yeah, yeah. you know how it goes. Yep, I yeah. took it to my homeboy who had a CD burner. Now this is 1997. A CD burner was like fifteen hundred dollars. Like no, the, I remember you know, that. I remember. You that. remember? It was like yeah. yo, this, you know. So it was a big deal to burn your stuff on CD, and I would just ride around and I, you know, I'd listen to it. I put it on at the crib. Yeah, man, it yeah. sounds good. Yeah. And so I, I decided I was going to start looking for people to collaborate with, you know, to write songs with. So I met this dude who had this production company called The Affiliates, and it was Affiliates with a PH, right? Because, you know, yeah, 90s, 97. 97. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so he had a deal with another producer, a guy named Fanatic, who was based in New Jersey. Also PH? Uh, no, no. His was F. <laughs> Fanatic with F. No, that's a good question. That's a legitimate question. Um, so he passed this track to Fanatic. Fanatic had some lyric writers he was working with. Um, and they created the song, Heaven Can Wait, right? And so this happened oh, This happened very slowly over the course of like three years. The, right. This track made its way to this. So um, in 2001, in the spring of 2001, I get a phone call from someone who claims to be the assistant to Teddy Riley, the great producer, right? Yeah. He's, you know, it's like, you know, hello, Nate. I'm calling on behalf of Teddy Riley, Um you know, Michael Jackson heard your song, Heaven Can Wait, and, you know, he wants to record it. So why don't you give us a call back and we can work out a deal? You know, yeah. it was like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't believe it at all. I was like, you know, if somebody called you with this, I'd be like, come on, man, who the fuck is this? This is yeah. a prank. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was uh, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, and they just kept sort of calling me all weekend, like trying to get me on the phone. Right. So it felt like it was real. So I finally called the my, my attorney at the time, we got on this conference call. We slugged it out with these other writers. And, you know, they were faxing deals over. I was going to Kinko's and picking up these faxes. And, you know, and this was all happening while I was living at home with my parents. My career was, the, the, it, was the, it was the very beginning of my, it was before I moved to New York. So I was living at home in Chesapeake with my parents. I was substitute teaching, you know, at the junior high school down the street. It was not, you know, a glamorous time. So for this to be happening, it all felt like a like a joke, you know. But anyway, I you know I signed the the deal. What will be will be. Send it off, and then uh, three or four months later, moved to New York. September of two thousand one, moved to New York. In October, I think like late October two thousand one, uh, Heaven Can Wait came out, 
And I opened up the credits and saw my name as a producer, saw my name as a songwriter. And it, w- it was just like, what is happening? Like, how did this happen? You know, um, but it happened. It happened. It, it was a uh, one of the more bizarre stories <laughs> in in general, like a music business story, but also like you know just how likely is this? You right, know, right, right. It's incredible, man. It's incredible. I mean, I've seen a lot. Not, I mean, Mike connected with Michael Jackson is a whole other level, but whole a lot, other. a lot of the you know, placements that I've had over the years were random like that. You know, like a CD goes to this person and that goes over to this person. And then two years later, there's a phone call. And so that part isn't uh, as bizarre, but it being a Michael Jackson record, because you just think of Michael Jackson having like his own like team of people doing everything. But I guess part of that is that team is finding records. Finding music. Finding music. And Teddy was on that team. So I have to kind of shout out to Teddy, too, because he reached out to me because he was like, yeah, I know the kid who did this this track. I, there's, so there's another part of the story is that I had done some work with Teddy Riley before this whole Michael Jackson thing happened. As a part of the affiliates, I had done this this production thing with him. And so I met him, and I think he even heard that track in another demo that right. he passed on, you know? Yeah. So when it came back to him, he reached out. And so, you know, it, it, it didn't have to go that way. He could, it could have been a different thing where they just kind of used it and said, Oh, well, yeah, but they did reach out. And so, um, did they remake the track or did they actually use your original track? They used the original track. Did you, say, did you go, I mean, did you send them like the multi-tracks and all of that? So you ended up. Yeah. I sent, we sent them the stems. What happened was, um, because of the, the relationship that, uh, this cat with the affiliates had with this producer fanatic, it was like, okay, well send me the stem so I can you know, mix it and, and yeah. start shopping it to different people. So uh, 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 the, according to myth, and I don't know if this is true or not, there are several versions of heaven can wait before it got to Michael. Got it. Right. So, you know, there's a, I think I heard a myth that genuine did a version of it. I yeah. heard a myth that like Tyrese had a version of it. I don't know if this is true or not. I never yeah. heard any of this. Yeah but that it went through several iterations before it, it landed on Teddy Riley's desk. And then when Michael heard it, he was like, I want it. I have to have it. Yeah, and he yeah. was like, you know, this, I'm, <laughs> I'm taking it. it. I'm Michael. It. You know that what I'm saying? It. That's it. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's what I've heard. You know, there's, I feel so far removed from it because once the music left my hands, it was out of my hands. It was literally out of my hands. Right. So you never, you never, did you ever meet him? No, I never, never met him. him. I never met yeah. him. I was never in the studio with him. I was never, you know, I never saw the Secret Service. I never saw the yeah. the the monkeys or the pets. I never saw any of that. Like I it was just it was really far removed. I just it was basically like the very first like remote session I ever did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like yeah. 
Wow, that's crazy. I, we Adam Deitch and I made a lot of beats together. I mean, well, separately as well, but there was, there was a bunch of years where we were living next door to each other, and we used to make beats like all the time, and a lot of stuff would end up with different people. One of them ended up on the 50 Cent album called Curtis, and it's the first song on the record, and we never, you know, it was just we, we gave them a CD, I mean, we used to, I used to just literally carry CDs of beats with me everywhere I was. So if I was at a gig or at a show or whatever, and I gave it to this dude from G Unit Records, and we heard that he had picked a few beats at one point. That was like the one time I had there was a correspondence. And then the next correspondence was he ended up using one of them and it's going to be the first song on the record. And then we quickly had to like figure it all out because it was coming out. Because, you know, in his world, he'd make 50, no pun, but 50 songs and then, and then they'd put out 12. And, not, and it was hard to communicate. It was the communication was. Oh, forget it. Not clear. There's a there's a wall around. But we, you know, you know the, literally all we ever did was make this beat in my apartment, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, um, get, burn a CD. We never had any other, that was all we ever did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we never were in the studio with him or anything. I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you, it. it's, you know, I, I think about how many stories there are out there like that, where it's just some stuff you did in your bedroom or at the crib that ends up and you're hearing it on the speakers at Madison Square Garden. You're like, how did this happen? You know? Yeah. yeah it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, well, I've been listening to the new record a bunch the last couple of days. Congratulations on the record. Thank you, man. And, Thank you so much. And actually it was funny because when I went to go listen to it, when we, when we talked, okay, about to have you on the show, you are the cover of the jazz like yeah. button. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's a beautiful man, they thing. They chose man. the maddest picture they could find too. I look mad. <laughs> I look salty on that cover. Like, yeah, listen to some jazz. Yeah, listen to jazz now or else. Man, I got to say that it's such an eclectic album. Um there's so many different styles, but it all flows. Uh where I'm curious if did you record a lot more songs than on is on the album? That was my first question. Um, or, or was it pretty much, okay, I've got these songs written. Let's, let's cut these. You know, we did record, I think we did maybe two, two or three more songs than ended up on the record. Um, but it was pretty, it was pretty tight to what we've been playing live. You know, I felt really lucky, man, that we, um, had been working as a band before we went into the studio, you know? And so that there was a real, the, the music had like a personality, you know? So um, we did two sessions, June of 2019 and then February of 2020. And uh, both in, in both of those situations, we had had a few gigs right before we had played, you know, right before we went to the studio. It was kind of basically based on what I had been bringing into the band, ideas we had been developing on stage and stuff that felt like it could work, you know, in, in, a, in a record like in the sequence of a record, you know, um, but the, the, in terms of the guest appearances and the, and the stuff, you know, all that stuff happened kind of at the 11th hour or, you know, after the fact, um, and definitely post COVID all that stuff happened. But yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm so, so psyched about how it turned out. I, I feel really proud of it. I'm so psyched about how the band sounds, you know, um, there's a little bit of editing I did, but what you're hearing basically is what we played like in the room, you know, and, and it's, it, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled about it, you know? And like the song with Britney, for example, was that 
um, something she came in and you guys created that create. I know she she did she record her part afterwards as well. She recorded her part after. So yeah, yeah. Th- that song existed as an instrumental uh, at oh, first. Oh wow, okay. So we did an instrumental version of it, and then we did a version. I just said while we were there, let's just cut a version where we don't play the melody in case lyrics happen, in case oh, a guest okay. happens. You know, so we did two versions of it, and you know, I had. We recorded actually before I started touring with Britney and really kind of gotten to know her. Um, and so I, it took me a minute to sort of work up the courage to ask her to do yeah. it, even though I work with her and stuff. And she's a super, super cool person. So it, you know, it wasn't like, but I just also didn't, you know, it feels weird when you're asking somebody who's on like that level. It's like, yeah, would you, would you, you know, be down? But she was so open, man. Um, she, she turned it around so quick. Uh, and we, we have this nice little text thread of us, you know, trading lyric ideas. Hers were always better. So, you know what I mean? She's, she's, she's won a few Grammys for writing songs. So, um, but no, man, that, that was actually the last, Brittany and Stokely were the last two guests who joined the record. Um, and that all happened. Regina, um, Regina Carter, Vernon Reed, Stokely and Brittany, that all happened remotely. Right. Um, them doing their that's thing. so interesting because it doesn't sound that way you know what I mean like the Vernon one sounds so much like that he's in the room you know and I love how that one came out the way that those it's like jagged but also I, I don't know how to describe it but that 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 track really uh, has such a unique sound to it like there's no genre to that track playing like the main like sort of guitar parts yeah, on the yeah, record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um so he brought in, he said, man, I, I you know I really want to I want it to be like metal, man. So he so we rented like this big Marshall cabinet and put it in the yeah. in a thing and mic'd it up. And he knew what he needed to get that sound, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we got it. And he he crushed it. And then, you know, reaching out to Vernon, obviously who's a hero, a musical hero. I mean we we talked about Living Color and we could talk about Living Color for another hour. Yeah. But reaching out to him is um, first of all, he was really open and gracious about doing it. Like, yeah, man, so of course. And then it was like, I know so much about him as this shredding guitar player for, for living and all this stuff. But then there's this other part of Vernon that's like this sonic composer, ambient kind of like Fripp kind of David Torn vibe that he has where he just creates this universe of sound. And I was like, that's what I want for this record. I want you to take it to like, you know, take it to the movies. You know what I mean? He, he just made it epic, man. And um, so when he sent it back and I, I layered all that sound, you know, underneath or on top or however you want to see it with, with the band, it was just like, it made it complete. It just really made it complete. Wow, that's um, cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, he's an incredible musician, man. Just like, and like you said, there's so many layers to his thing. I was curious about the the composition too. Are you writing? Because there's a lot of you know. I mean, obviously you got MCs and singers. Are you are you involved with the lyric writing in terms of like the more in terms of like this this the singing? 
No, no, no. I, I, I would give, um, I would give the writers like a concept. Like I'd say, yo, this is where I'm kind of coming from. Um, and that kind of all began with my relationship with Ama. So Ama, who's on this record, is on the first record too. She's on um, the postcards from everywhere. Yeah. Ama and I've written a lot of songs together, and um, she's like, in my mind, one of the one of the best, most eloquent lyricists, you know. And so I would just we we'd sit down at the piano. I'd say I have this idea, and I play it, and we do a little voice memo, and we talk about the the record, talk about the idea. And then she would come back to me with a demo that completely encapsulates the idea, but is also incredibly catchy. And, you know, it, she's just she's just really great at it. She's really, really great. Um, and so it was the same concept when I reached out to Michael and Kokai um, for those songs. It was like I just would give them an idea about what I was hoping to capture with the song. And then they would come back and just knock it out of the park, you know. And are you creating demos generally like uh... – Using like logic or what? What's your, what? What? What's your what's your tool of choice? My my tool of I usually use Pro Tools. I just yeah. started sort of learning Logic, but I would usually just do like um like record. Uh, when I was doing this record, man, it was real janky. I would go to um, Michiko Studios, and I would just like open up GarageBand, just open up the laptop, and I would record a little drum part. Then I sit down at the piano and record a little piano part, and it sounded terrible, but the idea was was there, you know, and I could at least I could at least share it and say this is the direction. Um, but when I was doing, um, whenever I do with stuff that's a little more complete, I would you know kind of go into Pro Tools and play all the play all the parts and gotcha. say this is what I'm I'm hearing for the right, song, right, you know. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it 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 doesn't even begin to compare to to having the full band, you know, like having all the players. Oh, it's just it brings it to life, you know. And is is uh is Kinfolk planning like tours behind the album and in, in Yeah. We've got about yeah, we got a few shows coming up. Um November. We're doing a handful of shows. Um November fourth through the eleventh, I think. We're just doing like a little East Coast, northeast run. Um, so we'll be near Boston, we'll be in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, we're doing Philly, we're doing New York, and we're doing DC. And uh and is Brittany got some dates coming up as well? We just finished a run with Britney. We did. Yeah. Um, uh, you guys were at the Hollywood Bowl, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Just like last week. Yeah. It was my son's birthday that day. I was like trying to try to go, but there was a whole family situation. I mean, I've worked with a lot. Alex Shakur was actually in my band in my band oh, for a while. And I, okay. I, I love Alex, man. He's yeah, such a- man. He's great. I didn't know him before working with, with him with Britney. He's, he's a great guitarist, great dude. You know, Great producer as well. Like, oh, just, really? He makes amazing tra- his sister Alicia, who's actually going to be on the show, also um, just made a record, and he's playing, I think, pretty much everything on it. And they just sent me like the the uh, advanced copy. It is amazing. Oh man, amazing. I gotta I gotta dive in. Yeah, Alex yeah. is such a quiet cat. You know, he's just like he kind of just comes, shows up, plays the hell out of the instrument and then he's just like okay well we see him on the bus you know yeah so i didn't know he had this whole well of of music <laughs> oh yeah man he plays everything like he's he's nasty on like pretty much everything it, it's funny uh charles you know he was in charles bradley's band as well as Sh- sharon jones but Char- charles bradley used to call him the quiet storm quiet storm yeah he, he told me <laughs> he told me that but man i so i saw uh, uh you with Brittany howard and her band at uh the ace so it's the the ace I mean, it was pre, 
pre-COVID, maybe like a year, maybe two, was that two years ago now? It was fall 2019. Yeah, fall 2019. Wow, crazy. Wow. That was two years ago. That is crazy. Wow. Oh, yeah. God. Wow. Yeah, my wife wasn't even pregnant yet, and now we have yeah. a baby that's a year old. That's, 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 2020 just kind of... It just disappeared, man. It just evaporated. Like, you know, it, it's all a blur of, like, bad news, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that band just was incredible that night. Uh, such a great show. And I had just been digging into her music or like his, her solo material at the time. And I was, I was, I was definitely, I left there a major fan, major fan. Oh man. Yeah. She, she is, Brittany is, is the truth. And having been, having been in bands, you know, with Dave Holland, Chris Potter, and Pat Metheny, I mean, you've worked with all these people. Is, is there anything you can say about, you know, kind of, and again, I hate using this word, but playing in the jazz world versus playing in the more like rock pop world? Like wh- how, how do those worlds kind of differ to you as a, as a sideman or as a drummer? Yeah, there, there are some differences. I think the, the biggest difference is the audience in the jazz world is kind of accustomed to a slower build, you know? So a song can last, you know, eight, nine minutes in a jazz club because the audience is, they're, they're waiting for, for, they're like, okay, well, let's, let's see where this goes. You know, in the rock pop world, you know, you got to hit it from the downbeat and you got to keep that energy up, you know? And even when you are soloing or even when there's a ballad, even when there's the, there's always like this sort of quiet intensity and like urgency in the in the in the on stage because you've got to keep the people with you, you know. Um, and that is something that I feel that I I, I, see, I think sometimes rock musicians could you know I think learn a little bit from jazz musicians about maybe requiring a little more patience of the audience. And jazz musicians could probably learn a little bit from rock musicians about giving audiences a little bit more, you know, keeping them engaged a little bit more, you know. Um, but the the approach is a little bit different in that way because you're always thinking, okay, so do we still in the in the rock rock world? You're like, okay, do we still have them? Do we still have them? Are they still with us? In the jazz world, it's like I think they're going to follow us. They'll 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 follow us for this, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, I you know with Soul Live and with even you know with my own stuff, I definitely find that you know sometimes we underestimate the audience. You know what I mean? Like we want to just go hard, like Soul Live especially. We 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 would be loud out the gate, and you know as we got older, we would we would kind of challenge the audience more. You know what I mean? And and require and then I mean of course we'd bring them there. But the thing is, if you start out on eight, you only got. To, you, you can only go to 10. For Whereas sure. if you start out to, or, you know, the dynamics with us, I think, got, you know, broader as we, as we got older. So when you go out um, with, with your band, with Kinfolk, do you say you draw from, from both places? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I draw from not only both places, but also, you know, my own memories of my earliest observations about people socializing around music, you know? Yeah. Like, um, I kind of feel like I'm fortunate that I didn't grow up with around a lot of musicians because, you know, musicians, we have a tendency to get inside the music and try to like deconstruct it. Like, okay, well, this is what they're doing over here. And this is what they, and this is how they're doing it. And this, whereas people who aren't musicians are just listening to the music and they're like, 
I like this or I don't like it. Or this makes me feel happy or this makes me feel a little blue or this makes me feel, you know. So growing up around people and watching that relationship with music, I think it gave me a little bit of a vantage point. I could say, okay, well, yeah, you know, maybe musicians might think, oh, well, is that, it? maybe that's a little too obvious or whatever. But folks who are listening to music who have every right to, to hear the music they want to hear, they're going to receive it in a different way. They're going to be like, oh, I like that. I like the groove on that. I like the, you know. Um, so I'm kind of thinking a little bit in the, it kind of in the middle of that. Like, um, I don't want to compromise the music I'm making, but I also don't want to alienate the audience either. You know, right. the audience is a right. big part of the equation, you know? Yeah. Um, and they're a part of, in, in my opinion, I feel like they are a part and with most of the, um, the greatest musicians that we really admire. They're a part of the design too in the yeah. way they make the music, you know, they're, we're thinking about the audience. Um, so yeah, it, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a balance there. I mean, I, I always like to play my music, like my mixes or whatever for like my wife, who's not a musician or for other people. It's like playing it for musicians is also good in terms of like getting validation, but and sometimes I think it's more important to play it for people that are really going to give you just how it hits them. And, and, you know, it's not about technical things or, or sound or, 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 uh, you know, the mix or the master. It's, it's really about the, the, the rawness of how they feel from it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's very powerful that way, man. It, and, you know, as musicians, sometimes we, you know, get so caught up in the nuts and bolts that we forget that, you know, this is a powerful art form. You know, yeah. maybe maybe the most powerful one. You know, so um, yeah, I, we, I think it's really good, man, to listen to to the people around you who are just telling you how the music makes them feel. That's that's important. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, yeah, it's like kind of everything. <laughs> yeah. For sure, <laughs> for sure. Well, man, uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and, and talking with me. I hope we get to make some music together one yes, of sir. these days. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Thank you, and and congratulations on your new record. Oh, thank you, man. Um, yeah, thank man. You. Yeah, yeah, I've been seeing the post. I heard, I think I heard a little snippet of it online, but I I'm, I, I need to go do a deep dive. Is it a full album that's out? We've released a couple of the songs and um, we're like kind of releasing singles for a few more months and then it comes out um, early, right in the beginning of next year. Oh, beautiful, man. Beautiful. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Appreciate you, man. See you, brother. Yeah. I want to thank Nate Smith for being on the show. Really cool dude. I'm a huge fan of his music. So before we go, we're going to play one song off of his newest album. This one's called Fly From Mike and features the great Brittany Howard on vocals. I wanna go where no one can keep me bound 
Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Osiris.